0: The following are the words of Dorian Corey from Jenny Livingston's award-winning documentary, Paris is Burning. Quote, I always had hopes of being a big star. And as you get older, you aim a little lower. And I say, you still might make an impression. Everybody wants to leave something behind them, some mark upon the world. Then you think you left a mark on the world if you just get through it. And a few people remember your name. Then you left a mark. You don't have to bend the whole world. I think it is better just to enjoy it. Pay your dues and enjoy it. If you shoot an arrow and it goes real high, hooray for you. Fame is an elusive mistress. So many want it. When you have it, your life seems perfect. But remember, the spotlight may be bright, but it is also small. It only reaches so far. It is what lies in the shadows that defines the many realities of our lives. Realities we might rather have kept locked away in a closet, only to be discovered among the sequins once we are gone. How long can you protect your secrets? And who sits in that closet, cold as ice, waiting for the day when the spotlight rounds that corner and finds them, making it obvious that the dark edges of this story had been screaming for attention? but they had waited too long. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead.
1: in that closet holly <laughs> we're gonna find out oh boy
0: <laughs> we're so good at saying things in unison in person I no i love it it makes me forget about how terrible we are at it when we're not in person
1: <laughs> it warms my heart now every time we me say too. it in unison <laughs>
0: we're back
1: yay
0: hey leslie hey holly hey fiends i hope everyone is doing well and enjoying the slightly looser reins we all have now that some of quarantine restrictions have been lifted like a little bit yeah you get like an inch Mm-hmm. Just an inch. Don't take more. They're gonna. I. Everyone is, and I'm. I'm like still kind of. I'm pretty cautious still. Like, I haven't really gone out into the world yet.
1: Have you? Uh, not too much. I've been trying not to, but our shop is open, so. I have to. Yeah, but that's work and you control that environment kind of. Mm -hmm. So like you can feel secure knowing that you've
0: done everything.
1: Yeah, we did try to go out to lunch the other day. It was a very low key where we were, but there were a lot of people walking by us. And that's where I was like, I'm going to be really picky. It was very stressful. People were coming up talking to us and their masks were just flying all over the place and we were just like shoving our masks around our face. Oh my god, <laughs> you wanna just like hide in a tunnel? I can't that's terrible. But we're sitting like twelve feet apart from each other still and <laughs> I think that's like a force of what we're doing. Yeah. You
0: know? yeah. We're not we're not weird around each other, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> We actually integrated with like a few friends, just like a few families that we're really close with. And I have a hair appointment. So if you missed out uh, on what I look like as a swamp monster, I'm sorry. That time is up (laughs) next Saturday. Leslie got all of it. Yeah, I feel blessed. Loves it. (laughs) I'm generally a paranoid person, so I need to feel real secure before I'm going to like sit in a crowded room or anything, which sucks also because I'm an actress and I'm pretty scared about the future of live performance as your family probably is. Yeah, absolutely. Because John's a performer. Um, I guess somebody's going to have to hire me to do something pre-recorded, which I can do now. Because you're getting your hair done. Yeah, because I'm getting my hair done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or because I have experience, like, reading things. And, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> that, too. I have a face for radio. <laughs> so, before we get into today's case, I will just issue my standard desperate plea for reviews. Please, if you have not done so already, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a friendly review and or just a five-star rating. It really does mean the world to us. Oh, and if you would like to further support We Would Be Dead, you can easily find us on Patreon. Where you can leave a little monthly donation and be in the Cool Kids Club.
1: Yes, we're going to be sending out some things soon. I got some stuff to send. I'm excited.
0: It's cool stuff. You guys are going to like it. So cool. And we all want to be in the Cool Kids Club, right? Yep. Yeah, that's basically the goal of life. So uh, on with the show. Okay. As we hopefully all know, June is Pride Month. Woo. Uh, we, of course, want to honor our LGTBQ+, friends and family. And while there are countless crimes committed against the LGTBQ+, community, I thought I would pick a situation I didn't really know too much about. Okay. So we will cover Matthew Shepard and Brandon Tina and Andrew Cunanan and probably sooner than later, Dennis Nilsen. But this week, oh, this week, we're taking a trip to the ball. Mm. <laughs> Ballroom culture is something I knew very little about when I began researching this case. I had seen Paris is Burning ages ago, but that was before I had the presence of mind to sit and consider the cultural significance of what I was watching. So did you find like watching it as like a more of an adult was probably different? I don't know if you had seen it before, but like
1: I never saw it before. Uh, but watching it now, it was I think I would have got, I think I got more out of it than I would have years ago. Because
0: you just have like so much more culture in your head and you see where Mm. it comes from and it feels crazy. Right. And yeah, because I've lived a little bit more. Not crazy, but it's just very revealing, I think. Like I did, Mm -hmm. I never realized when I, and I went back this week and watched it twice with purpose and I was totally gobsmacked and I will be binging all of Pose as well. I know, I know I am way behind, but please forgive me. I can recite every episode of Teen Titans Go, and I'm not sure if that is enviable or something to be pitied, but I will
1: take both angles. I'm jealous. And live with them.
0: (laughs) Violet will tell you, I I do a pretty decent Starfire, so. Hot. You know. (laughs) But let's take it one step at a time. Paris is Burning is a documentary released in 1994 directed by Jenny Livingston, about the underground culture of Black and Latin LGTBQ+, New York in the 80s. It is a vibrant, beautiful, colorful explosion of culture, sound, fashion, and movement, complete with its own lexicon and royal families. This culture culminated in events known as balls, where people would walk in competitions that were half runway, half dance battle, and win prizes for their efforts. But it is so much more than that. I'm just trying to introduce it broadly before we get into any kind of fine point. And oh man, is that a difficult task. I am a descriptive writer, but that was like trying to describe a flamingo in a room full of people who don't even know that there are birds.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) Thanks.
0: Thanks. Not that our audience is uninformed whatsoever, they're definitely not, but it's a pretty good rule of thumb to write like you're explaining your situation to a person who is brand new to planet Earth. So welcome, and please don't bring your alien friends with you. So just them,
1: they can be the <laughs> only you aliens? you by yourself,
0: and you yeah. can't look like an alien. I, you, I have to just think you're a person. <laughs> cool. No fiend left behind here. Now- I'm told that if you are a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race all the terminology heard at a ball will sound incredibly familiar to you And they did to me simply by association and because I don't live like completely under a rock decorated with cartoon characters I know, I am an encyclopedia of crime, but minorly backlogged with important pop culture phenomena viewing. But I've heard the song Supermodel and Madonna's Vogue and half the things Lady Gaga has written and many more, and therefore found myself minorly familiar. No, Madonna did not invent voguing.
1: She stole it. That's another story for another time. I know, I wish they'd fix that on all like the Wikipedia sites and stuff. Yeah, that's false. And honestly, I
0: don't think she pretended to invent Mm -mm. it. I think she intended to celebrate it. But when you celebrate something most people don't know about, they kind of just think you made it up. Right. So I'm not blaming Madonna. Don't sue us, Madonna, Dr. (laughs) Phil, Janet De the Catholic Church, and like 10 other people. Somebody else will remember for me. But um, Leslie, would you like to share some key terms from ballroom culture with the class?
1: Okay. Thank you. So the first one would be battle. Which kind of makes sense. It's when a performer challenges another in and out of the ball. Ah. Yes. Uh, We have Butch Queens. They are a gay male who is neither extremely masculine nor extremely feminine, but has the mannerisms of both. Thank you, John yeah,
0: for explaining that to us in more appropriate terms. It was a very vague definition that we had, and John helped us out putting a point on it so yeah. thank
1: you because <laughs> also there's like 12 other versions of butch queens It's like butch queens in pumps butch queens in drag so those are not butch queens boy is that specific but, or they are i don't know i think there were just i think there were terms that kind of changed over the years yeah i
0: mean all of it was kind of something that evolved as it was going
1: mm-hmm. so my favorite is cheesecake cheesecake <laughs> i love cheesecake This is when you must have a body, but also be sexy. Oh. Mm -hmm. I think that must be, I think cheesecake is uh, like one of the categories that you could do. I would like to be a cheesecake. Yeah. I think I'm a cheesecake. Get it. Get a cheesecake. (laughs) There's femme queen. This is a trans woman. Uh, The categories with this description are for trans women only. Oh, okay mopping would be stealing. So that's when, um, mostly I think it involves like stealing of the outfit. So a lot of, yeah. a lot of the contestants would steal their costumes from places because most of them didn't have a lot of money or yeah. if they were trying to do some of the, some of the categories were like high end fashion.
0: Yeah. Those costumes are bananas. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, stealing came out of necessity really. Cause yeah. like you said, like they didn't have much and they were, Kind of Mm -hmm. making their life happen
1: on their own. Mm -hmm. And it could have either been a whole outfit, a piece of it, or even just materials to use to make your own costumes. Yeah, some of them are amazing seamstresses. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's realness. In a ballroom culture, realness is the ability to pass as a certain gender or sexuality in everyday society.
0: Yeah, they describe it as like if you can walk out into the light of the day Mm -hmm. and no one notices. Like that's how Dorian Corey refers to
1: it. Yeah. Paris is Burning. Yeah, and that's probably one where a lot of people were envious of them yeah. for that. Yeah, Reading is the art of insults. A good read should never be overtly bitchy. You find a flaw in your opponent and verbi- verbally, I cannot say that word. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, what was the um, one that I couldn't say?
0: Entrepreneurial. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you find a flaw in your opponent and then you verbally exaggerate it. So basically, you're just finding that flaw and attacking them for it.
0: Mm -hmm. I would die. Mm -hmm. I'm too sensitive. I'll crumple like a leaf.
1: (laughs) And then reading would then turn into shade. So people start off with reading and then they get better at it and they could turn it into shade. And shade is an underhand jab that's slightly insulting and usually an inside joke. Shade can also be an action such as an eye roll or even a smile. Um, I put down a little line here from Paris is Burning. Yes. I don't have to tell you you're ugly because you already know you are.
0: I love that line. I'm really glad you quoted it because I love that one. You just
1: know that you are. Yeah. Okay.
0: (laughs) I do (laughs) now.
1: I thought this one was cute. It's T which is pop culture, the T is the news, the scoop, the latest gossip. I wonder why that is the word that is used. I was thinking, like, tea; it's a very English. Like, you'd sit down for tea, and you would, like, gossip. Yeah. With your ladies. Okay. Yeah. I'm on board. Obviously, there's voguing. You talked about that. That's where you're dancing it out. It's a safe form of throwing shade, too.
0: I like when they said that like houses were gay street gangs, and like oh, voguing mm-hmm. was how they fought. That yep. was,
1: mm-hmm. um, and also voguing would be uh, where you would. I don't know why I didn't write that down, but we know what that is. That's where you're dancing imposes. poses. Mm-hmm. Um, They take it from the modeling. Yeah, so it's like
0: model poses. And they also said it was based on like Egyptian hieroglyphics and all this. Like there's a ton of culture blended into like the
1: positions they put their bodies in. And it's amazing to watch. And Vogue Femme, this was the last term I wrote down, is a category for butch queens to express their most feminine side, a dance style that adds a twist to femme queen technique. It's an execution that can be very soft or even severe. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that lesson in terminology.
0: So now you guys can get like kind of a sense of the culture that we're talking about. Because I know a lot of those terms when they're thrown around in Paris is burning, all I can think of is like people say that now because of RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize how far back and how storied they were. So it was very, I don't know, I liked liked learning it. That's a good sentence. (laughs) I like to learn. It's good. (laughs) I feel better for knowing it. So hooray. (laughs) Balls are the grandest island of misfit toys in the entire world. They are, or rather were in their earlier days, because I don't think they're as kind of slapdash and sort of dangerous as they used to be now. Um, They are a place where wish fulfillment reigns supreme. Have you ever heard the saying that if you're not getting cast in the parts that you want, you should write your own play? That's how I live my life, by the way, and it's worked out for me so far. Um, Well, that is a ball, a place where you can be anything you want to be, from a high-fashion supermodel to a soap opera star to a regular old kid in school to a Wall Street executive to a four-star military general, and all you have to do is dress the part. Dorian Corey said in real life, you can't get a job as an executive unless you have the educational background and the opportunity. Now, the fact that you are not an executive is merely because of the social standing of life. Black people have a hard time getting anywhere and those that do are usually straight. In a ballroom, you can be anything you want. You are not really an executive, but you're looking like an executive. You're showing the straight world that I can be an executive if I had the opportunity because I can look like one. And that is like a fulfillment. So let's, like, sit in that for a minute because it's something I feel like people should think about. Leslie's delicately sitting in it. <laughs> it's very graceful, and you're all <laughs> missing it. While it's a lot of fun for white, straight people to watch drag race and yell about shady queens and realness, in reality, we should probably take several seats. This really isn't for us. We can appreciate it, and we definitely should appreciate it, but we can't be it. And we were discussing this earlier, like, some things get adopted into colloquialisms, and that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's how language evolves. But I think there's a certain position that... We, we just shouldn't be taking no. it. So. <laughs> this was a movement born from dreams and struggle. It was so hard for a poor black, gay, or trans person to get ahead in the world that they created a whole entire world to get ahead in. So I'm going to read you another quotation from Paris is Burning. I know I seem like I'm just summing up this documentary, but it's super important and it sets the stage better than I think I ever could in my own words. Um, and this is from House Mother Pepper Labesia. And I will explain the term house mother in a minute. Um, and she is, he sorry, is talking about ball categories and why participants may choose to emulate the things that they do. This is white America. Any other nationality that is not of the white set knows this and accepts this till the day they die. That is everybody's dream and ambition as a minority, to live and look as well as a white person. It is pictured as being in America. Every media you have, from TV to magazines to movies to films. I mean, the biggest thing that minority watches is what? Dynasty and the Colby's, All My Children, the soap operas. Everybody has a million dollar bracket. When they're showing you a commercial from Honeygrams to Crest or Lestoil or Pinesol, everybody's in their own home. The little kids for Fisher-Price toys, they're not in a concrete playground. They're riding around the lawn. The pool is in the back. This is white America. And when it comes to the minorities, especially black, we as a people for the past 400 years is the greatest example of behavior modification in the history of civilization. We have had everything taken away from us, and yet we have all learned how to survive. That is why in the ballroom circuit, it is so obvious that if you have captured the great white way of living, or looking, or dressing, or speaking, you is a marvel. I don't want to tell anybody how to react to that because outrage is not a useful emotion. It's mostly just for show. But what you should do is go back and listen to it 10 more times and let it sink in. Because that's that stuck with me so so hard mm. after watching it. I think I did listen to that passage so many times. We have to remember from whence this glorious culture was born, because it wasn't money or fame or fortune, it was struggle and fear and death. Is that what remains? Absolutely not! Ballroom is still alive and thriving, many participants escaped their tragic beginnings and became more than they could have ever possibly dreamed, and they got there by raising each other up. And in the absence of a part for them, they continued to write their own play. In fact, many of the people who appeared in Paris's Burning were mortified by the way Jenny Livingston tried to portray them. The film film was advertised, and I didn't see any of these, but it's horrible. She had advertised it by saying it was like a sensational film that showcased real-life prostitutes and thieves. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. Isn't that gross? Yeah. And one would think, I mean, without that umbrella put upon it, you and I just watched it like, here's a documentary that everyone should watch about. Mm -hmm. And so we took it a certain way. But if you were like, this is a spectacle of thieves and prostitutes, people would go into that a very, very different way.
1: Yeah. For sure.
0: That already casts judgment upon it.
1: They would have looked like they all had mental health disorders. Well, and everyone would have looked down on them immediately. Well, yeah, but they would have all looked sick in the head if that's what... If that's what you're presented with, you're presented with, these are
0: criminals. Here, look at these criminals. Yeah,
1: look look at the ridiculous things that they're doing. Right, yeah
0: and and i th- and this is a tragic misrepresentation and i can't believe that even occurred at the time it was being produced because it doesn't it just doesn't seem to be that Mm-mm. but if you there's a lot of like after um videos with their like uh, interviewing any of the people who remained alive in the few years after because a lot of them tragically passed away and and a lot of them are very mad at the film because of that okay so I'm glad that it kind of lives in a world now that wants to learn from it, though.
1: Yeah, because I never heard that take on it. Neither so did I. Maybe that's a good thing on from my side. Yeah, but. I think that it's a
0: better. the The film is more educational now than it was when it was first released because we don't see it as a spectacle. Right. So, mm. but... Yeah, it's just a different way of looking at things and, th- and all that stuff is just something to consider. And if it makes you uncomfortable, then it should. And we should kind of remember that when we're thinking about these people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I mentioned, Dorian was a house mother and this was a very serious title. Now we're not talking about a sorority house or a Girl Scout troop. This was a very real family filled with young people who had very real needs and no one else to care about them in the world. Houses are families, not the family you are born into, but the family you choose. You see, being gay or trans in the mid eighties was not exactly easy. And many of these folks were thrown out into the world by their parents with nothing. They would seek out places where they could find people like them. And if they were lucky or savvy enough, they might find people who would listen to their story. They might find a couch to sleep on that night and they would even be possibly invited into a house by the house mother. The house mother is the top of the line. I love the descriptions they have of the mother. Yes. Because they say that while a father might provide, a mother works the hardest and has the most power. Their words, not mine. Yep. Mm -hmm. I have that written down. So good. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, thank you, Willy Ninja. I love that. The mother gives life. Dorian Corey was the mother of the house of Corey. And the children once adopted into her house would share her last name as is traditional. So if whatever last name they had or adopted, that's the name that all their children would have. Mm-hmm. We talk about the extravaganzas soon, which is a fantastic last name. Yeah. But this is not a story about a ball. It is a story of a murder. Well, two murders to be precise. And I just wanted to make sure everyone was briefly acquainted with the world in which they are entering right now and which these things occurred. So aside from the aforementioned issues of race and sexual preference, many trans women gravitated to the ball scene and found themselves in a different kind of danger. These were women who just wanted to live free of their birth gender and dead name. A great many of them were able to scrape the money together for a breast augmentation and by doing so they were able to walk the earth as a female without question. However, occasionally a sexual encounter would end in the worst kind of violence. House mothers took care of their adopted children as though they were a part of their own blood, always referring to them as their sons or daughters. They made sure their kids had places to live, food to eat, and clothing on their backs. They helped young people find their way in the ballroom circuit. They did everything they could to keep them safe, but many children still engaged in risky behavior and trusted people that maybe they shouldn't have because they were young and wrapped up in a world where they thought they were safe. Sadly, law enforcement didn't do much to protect them either, and one such tragic story was that of 23-year-old Venus Extravaganza,
1: and Leslie is going to tell us about her. So Venus, who I loved in the movie, yes, she just had so much fire. Mm-hmm. Venus was born Thomas Pelagatti on May twenty second, nineteen sixty five, in Jersey City, New Jersey. Oh, mm-hmm. a Jersey girl. Her parents were of Italian American and Puerto Rican descent. She had four brothers. Wow. She took the name Venus and began cross dressing and performing around the age of thirteen or fourteen. Wow. Good for her. Her family was catching on to her private affairs and she decided to leave because she didn't want, quote, to embarrass them. So I moved away. At 14 years old. Isn't that crazy? That's so sad. So she moved to New York City, pretty much homeless at that age. On her 15th birthday, she met a man named Hector Val. He was the first gay person she had ever met. He threw her a birthday party and bought her a cake, took her in. was really sweet. Very, you know, friends. I love that. Uh, it was a happy day for her. When she was 18, Val, who was the house mother of Extravaganza, invited her to join and compete in the balls. Ooh. So two years later, Val died from AIDS-related complications, and Angie Extravaganza assumed the role of house mother. Oh my god, I love Angie. I know, Angie's, Angie's awesome. <laughs> as house mother, Angie takes Venus as her mentee and drag daughter, so they become very close. Venus loved competing in the balls, and she was an aspiring model. She was very cute. She was trying to save money for her sex change to, quote, make myself feel complete. In Paris is Burning, Venus admits to prostitution as a way to make money. At the time of the filming, she was no longer, or says she was, like, no longer prostituting, but was more of an escort, so there was less physical contact and more emotional. But sometimes her escortings would lead to sex, but most of the time not. That's how she liked to describe it. Um, she explains that this was safer than what she had been doing. Her clients were more interested in hanging out, buying her things, giving her money to help with her sex change. Um, I took that, and I guess she kind of puts it this way, but I took that as, like, they believed that, you know, buying her some nice things so that maybe the next time they hung out, she could wear them and maybe look more feminine, too. <laughs> I love when she talks about that. She's like, mm-hmm. so that I look beautiful the next time they see me. hmm Okay. And if they were, you know, paying her for her sex change then she would be the woman that they wanted her to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When talking about her past experiences, she mentions one scary night where she was being intimate with a guy in a car, and when his hands ventured south, he found her penis, and he got angry, and she jumped out of the car window, narrowly escaping an attack. Ugh. And that was really scary when she was talking about that. You could just see the fear. Like, she can still remember that. She says she jumped out the window. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Yeah. I was you like, how did jump she jump out, out of a window? There? Oh, my gosh. She was probably kicking and, oh. Tuck and roll. Tuck and roll, I know. Like I said. oh. So this story becomes even more heartbreaking when you find out at the end of the movie that Venus was found strangled under a bed at the Duchess Hotel in New York. Her body was estimated to have been there for four days before being discovered. She was only 23.
0: She looks so young in the movie, Mm too. She's
1: so soft-spoken
0: and so, like, little and looks so young. Mm -hmm. You just, like, that hits my heart because you just want to protect this person. Absolutely.
1: Her house mother, Angie Extravaganza, was the first to be told of Venus's death by the police... She was the one who had to call Venus's parents. (sighs) And I'll end with this long quote from her. In the film, Angie narrates the discovery of her death. I always used to tell her, Venus, you take too many chances. You're too wild with people in the street. Something is going to happen to you, but that was Venus. She always took a chance. She always went into strangers' cars. She always did what she wanted to get what she wanted. The DTs came to me with a picture of her murdered and they were about to cremate her because nobody had come to verify the body and I was the one that had to give all of this information down to her family. Actually, they found her dead after four days, strangled under a bed in a sleazy hotel in New York City. We used to get dressed together, call each other, and say, what were you going to wear? And, you know, she was like my right hand. And as far as I'm concerned, I miss her. Every time I go anywhere, I miss her. And that was my main, the main daughter of my house, in other words. It's just so sad. It's such a
0: gut punch when you're watching Mm -hmm. the movie, too, because she's so, like, like you said, she's got so much, like, life, and she's so Mm -hmm. fun, and, like. I think part of you kind of identifies with her. Yeah. And she seems to be so hopeful and even innocent at times. Mm -hmm. And to find that out is just so sad and horrifying.
1: I know, especially when you hear of the first experience where she gets away. You're like, oh, thank God. And she learned. it seemed like she kind of learned from it Mm -hmm. and she was being a little safer. But, ah, yeah. She just trusted people because Mm -hmm. she was young. At 23 years old, do you— can you imagine having
0: the wits about you to be like everyone is against me and I have to watch my back all the time.
1: Yep. No. And she was just desperate to feel complete. She wanted and loved. to be a woman and she wanted she wanted the full change and she needed money to do that and she wanted to be loved but she probably didn't feel like she could be until she was fully herself. <sighs> Hate thinking that I know, but the uh, the killer was never found. Um, I don't. My guess is that they just didn't look too far into it. They probably could have. I'm sure that some of some of her friends maybe tried to track down her like the normal people, but this could have been a one off. There was no fingerprints in that room. I know.
0: Where you're strangled. Strangulation is, first of all, pretty personal. Yeah. If you're going to strangle somebody to death, that's a personal thing. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that's done. You don't just like, because it takes a lot longer than it does in movies in real life to strangle a person to death. And it's a face-to-face moment. Yeah. You can't absently do it. You can't do it without thinking. So there's there had to have been something to go on. Mm-hmm. Even people she might have known, people she might have been with. I don't, I, I just, I agree. I don't think that they looked into it the way they could have. Nope.
1: I mean, they were just going to cremate her body. They didn't really care. (sighs) <sighs> Which is just rough. Yeah. I hate that idea. Yeah. But she is now, she's buried uh, with her family in a um, in North Jersey. Okay. Uh, but they did bury her with her dead name. Oh, God.
0: Yeah. That's a really
1: complicated situation. Yeah. Because
0: I don't think, and I don't know, because I don't live this life. I cannot speak from a place of absolutely knowing. Mm-hmm. But I can say that she did not, she considered, like, Angie to be her family. Yes. And she considered her name to be Venus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so to be buried under a name that you did not want to be called with people who you left in fear mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's missing the point
1: yeah absolutely I did try to find as much extra information about her as I could I did find a Facebook page that people still post on for her it's like that's a nice yeah it's um like a celebration page for her got it and uh there are so I guess there's uh, mention that she was still close to some of her family members. Well, that's um, good, I guess. Yeah. I feel like maybe her parents just didn't understand, but they still loved her. Obviously, they still wanted her to be buried with them. Yeah. I don't know if that was more of like a religious side for I them. I'm not sure. But she was close to her grandmother. There's a bunch of deleted scenes in Paris is Burning that I, I didn't, didn't see. I didn't see them either. But there was a ton of pictures of her like taking care of her grandmother in the house, cooking for her, doing all this Aww. stuff. So she really loved her her, um, which was interesting that she did, I guess, live with her a little bit. Which, and this is post like being 13 or 14 and running away.
0: This is her as like more of an adult.
1: Yeah. And I think okay. it's part of Paris is Burning. So I know that a lot huh. of times they live with the house mother in there. Yeah. But I think maybe she must have gone back and forth to take care of her grandmother.
0: Oh, my God. That's yeah. even sadder. I know. Ugh, horrible. Well, on that note, but I do encourage anybody who's listening to us right now to watch this documentary and to like look at these people in the face and see what they look like and how they interacted with their chosen family and how they performed and what they were like. Because I feel like it's important to take that in when you're listening to a person's death story. I suppose you would call it. Because they're people to us. We don't mm-hmm. think these are just like random. I don't, And I hope that never comes off because that's not how we feel.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I know more about some of these victims than I know about my own family members. So, <laughs> Very true. You know? So we do do our best to kind of make them as, as fleshed out to you as humanly possible. But as I said, like I can't speak from their point of view. Mm-hmm. But they can. And if you want to watch that, you should. So I'm going to talk about um, Dorian Corey. Who is seen in Paris is burning as like the grand um, drag queen, I suppose, of this situation. Dorian was a trans woman, but like, you know, she was a drag queen as well in certain events. I think I am trying with my terminology. (laughs) You guys, if I am wrong, please correct me. Please educate me.
1: I'm here to learn about it. And that's all. <laughs> I think John was going to make us a diagram. John oh, Ratacasta. yes. I hope.
0: <laughs> we might get a chart. And if we do, we will put that absolutely everywhere. Yes. And um, and I will study it. Um, and yeah. So, but she's seen in the documentary as like the matriarch of all of this. And Angie Extravaganza was um, originally in her house. She was originally mm-hmm. a Corey before she moved on to her own. And in the film, she's clearly older. And she's seen like putting on her face the whole time. Yes. Just like, a really cool, like, way to show her. And she's just so, like, poised and, mm-hmm. I don't know, I just wanted to listen to her talk forever. I know. <laughs> I felt <laughs> I like,
1: like I could, too.
0: <laughs> you just tell me stories forever. Yeah. I will listen to all of them. <laughs> Dorian was educated, respected, glamorous and left this world two major things when she died from AIDS related complications at the age of 56. A legacy in both photos and film and a mummified body in her bedroom closet. Ooh. Yeah, about that last one. Yeah. <laughs> In October of 1993, Lois Taylor and two young male friends, which sounds impossibly sexy, get it, Lois, entered the apartment of the late Dorian Corey. Dorian had passed away on August 29th, and Lois, who was a fellow drag queen, was also her caretaker in her final years. As such, Lois had keys to Dorian's apartment and access to her things, which had yet to be divided amongst her drag family and friends or donated. Lois had brought her two young friends to Dorian's apartment on this particular evening to help them find Halloween costumes. Fun.
1: They are going to find quite a costume. Yeah, Mm yeah.
0: While Dorian was a trans woman who had been able to undergo gender reassignment surgery, she was also a drag queen and had, in the past, been a showgirl, a dancer, a dressmaker, and a department store window dresser. She was very, like, handy and stylish. She okay. made things and had a very keen eye. She was widely known for her extravagant costumes, all of which, as I said, she made herself. She talks about how, like, when they were talking about having to steal things, mm-hmm. she's like, we just made everything, so I don't know what these people are talking about. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> like, We made the big feather headpieces and, like, the gowns. She earned over 50 titles voguing in balls and even had her own fashion label, Corey Designs. At one point, Corey's act involved her... Wearing a 30 by 40 foot feather cape. Once she shed her costume down to a sequined body stocking, two attendants raised the cape up on poles to produce a feathered tent that covered half the audience. That's amazing. I know. So, uh,
1: yeah, I would have wanted access to her closet too. Yep. (laughs) Right? This should be in the Smithsonian. That's amazing. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine they just did a whole exhibit? I would see that in a heartbeat.
0: Yes. Oh, my gosh.
1: We're here for it.
0: I know. Can you imagine being able to just cherry pick your Halloween costume from that closet fantastic i think i would die best mom in the world (laughs) right the only thing i love more than formal gowns is halloween oh put the two put the two together that is the best day i love it same (laughs) this was all set up to be the highlight of these two young men's lives i'm sure and it (laughs) certainly would prove to be memorable The trio searched through boxes and costume racks before coming to a large closet, which they probably assumed would be a treasure trove of old costumes. They opened it excitedly, and after a few moments, they noticed an old green garment bag folded in half on the floor of the closet. It was underneath whatever the contents of this closet may have been, and they must have been something of a letdown if all three of them were, like, crawling around on the floor looking at an old bag. But be that as it may, they really wanted to see what was in it. Maybe they thought it was that enormous cape. Maybe.
1: And they're like, where's the damn cape? <laughs> it's the cape.
0: <laughs> I mean, I would want to see that. Yeah. So maybe I would rifle through an old She's bag. She's probably for
1: it. buried with it. Like, <laughs> Wouldn't these, you be? Yeah, these bitches ain't taking my cape. I would just be <laughs> like,
0: raveled up in that yeah. cape. That's oh. what she was
1: buried in, like,
0: completely like, wrapped in, <laughs> <and>, like. <laughs> that would be phenomenal. Oh, I want that to be true. So first they tried to open it, but the zipper was not positioned in the place that was like currently the top of the bag. So it was underneath and that made it impossible to open. So they tried to move the bag out of the closet, but it was too heavy, which is sort of a strange problem for a garment bag to have. They pushed it around a little and tried to slide it across the floor or just roll it. And finally, in frustration, Lois handed a pair of scissors to one of the men and cut through the bag's green outer layer. This disturbance in the bag's contents pushed a smell up into the air. A rather distinct smell. The sickeningly sweet and rancid smell of decay. Mm. And that was it for their exploration of this bag. Lois Taylor called the damn cops job
1: lois yeah
0: good girl lois we would be dead salutes you gotta call the damn cops after a phone call to the damn cops the nypd sent over detective raul figueroa who cut into the bag further it was then they discovered that there were multiple layers wrapping up whatever this bag was hiding and whatever it was it was heavy and stank to high heaven so draw your early conclusions as you may Yeah. The first layer of the bag was obviously green fabric. And then came a layer of hide which is a faux leather that's used frequently in clothing and handbags. So if you ever had like a fake leather purse, it's probably that. Mm,
1: never. Never
0: once. Everything is real. Everything. <laughs> Says the woman who makes vegan
1: soap. <laughs> Well, but vegan leather is actually worse for the environment. Is it? It is. I Mm -hmm. did not know that. Yeah, it's more harm than which. uh, Sorry to people that. Sorry, vegans. But it is like to make so you shouldn't even if you care about the environment don't even buy vegan leather. Just buy vintage. Buy vintage. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. You still think that's wrong? Just don't. I don't know. Wear cloth corks or something. (laughs) Make it out of corks. (laughs) I would like a cork handbag. They make them.
0: Go I to craft shows. <laughs> probably wouldn't want them though.
1: You wouldn't. I bet they're mm. not cute. They're no offense, corkers. No, they're probably cute for um, like if you're gonna put a wine in it, you know. Oh yeah, that would be cute. I could see that. I want to mm-hmm. put wine in everything, so that's great. Yeah,
0: it's great for that. <laughs> <laughs> that works for me. And um, that's not what we're talking about, though. There were several layers of hide, so basically it's wrapped up in it. And while pulling back the layers, the detective noticed a tinkling sound and something was clattering to the floor as this package was slowly being dismantled. But he figured he could get onto that later. When they finally reached the center of this foul-smelling nesting doll, they found the body of a man, half mummified, half putrefied, laying in a slurry of his own decomposition. That's so gross. And it is the least gross way I could put it. Mm. If you listen to other versions of this story, they talk a lot about the soup that was in there.
1: <laughs> when I first read how they found the body, mm-hmm. I thought it said petrified, like in Harry Potter. You
0: oh, know, it's, it's just like, frozen <laughs> in like place. Say, yeah. yeah, no, <laughs> if only. No, and, and actually I found the details of it interesting, but I know that. Not the entire
1: world at large does, though. Tell us about it, Holly. (laughs) I want to (laughs) know.
0: I'll tell you a little about it. Okay. The man was wearing blue boxer shorts and had a single bullet wound to his head. Mm. If this sounds like a weird way for a body to decompose, well, it is. Usually it's one or the other. You're either mummified or you're putrefied. Natural mummification is the thing that happens, but usually in a dry, arid environment where it kind of bakes in the sun. So if you've ever found, like, a long dead squirrel under your house, that's kind of natural mummification. So either you're a mummy or you're skeleton suit. But the conditions here were pretty unique, and it was clear that the body had remained in that bag for quite a long time. It had been covered in baking soda and wrapped tightly in fabric, sort of mimicking the image we traditionally conjure up in our head when we think of a mummy, kind of like, you know, King Tut covered in gauze bandages with his legs tight together. But Egyptian mummies were liberally salted, resined, and relieved of some of their major organs, so clearly this did not work as well. So basically it was wrapped up and half of it kind of dried out, but not all of it did. Some of it was still squishy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Worse than squishy. Just like slime. Ew. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really unpleasant. I did not even look up crime scene images of this one, and I, you guys, I've seen some shit. I look up most of them, and I didn't didn't see this one, so.
1: I'm gonna look it up now. Go
0: ahead, because I saw the bodies in the barrel, so. So I saved those images from your eyes. I did not show them to you, but they are real gross (sighs) from when we did John Edward Robinson. So go back and listen to that if you want some real gross stuff about bodies in a barrel. Yeah. Uh, Now, remember the tinkling sound that I mentioned earlier? It was pull tabs, the kind that come off a can of beer, like a pop top. And there were dozens of them. The pull tabs were the kind that were primarily used in the late 60s and early 70s and then replaced with a more efficient design. May I remind you that this is 1993. So this man had been in that bag for upwards of 25 years, completely
1: undetected. Wow. Yep. Wouldn't it smell? I mean, I guess not. They didn't didn't even smell it until they started to cut into the bag. That's after some time, though. I think when you're like the bloated phase
0: and you just start to rot, I think that's probably a little little more smelly i don't know i will um i will refer you to morbid's coverage of this because they talk extensively about decomposition right and um she's great at it so Mm -hmm. yeah go listen we're fans Using some pretty revolutionary techniques, Detective Figueroa was able to get a fingerprint off this giant half-raisin, half-old grape of a body and run it through the system. As luck would have it, the body belonged to a man with a rap sheet, so he was easily identified. The body was identified as Robert Bobby Worley, born on December eighteenth, 1938. He had been arrested for raping and assaulting a woman in 1963 and served three years in prison by most Accounts he was estranged from his family and hadn't been heard from since the mid to late 60s. Mm-hmm. Dorian Corey had been living with a body in her closet since the late 60s. Holy shit. I can't fathom this situation. <laughs> and when did they find it again? 1993. Jeez. Yeah, it, that it's just bananas to me. Now, this would be unbelievable for any human, but it was especially shocking of Dorian. If you had to boil her down into one adjective, it would probably be unflappable. When listening to her talk, nothing faced nothing her. She does not look affected. She's calm and composed. She delivers powerful insights and witty comments and ferocious show banter. She lived her life fully and generously. Dorian lifted up countless young gay and trans people and undoubtedly had a couple guests in her apartment from time to time, and she did it all with a dead body a few feet away. So how did it happen? Well there are a few theories and they are all and they all involve the fact that the police simply wouldn't have much sympathy for a gay, black, trans woman in the mid to late sixties or the nineties, or now for that matter. It's not like the world has gotten monumentally better for women like Dorian. There have been steps, but not enough of them. Mm-mm. The first theory was that Robert Worley broke into Dorian's home and tried to rob and assault her, and she shot him in self-defense. It was well known among her peers that Dorian owned a small twenty-two. Murderer's best friend. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I feel like I'm always talking about a twenty-two. She's not a murderer, but, you know, whatever. That's your new rap song? <laughs> <laughs> She knew that she would most likely be sent to jail anyway if she called the police. And that Manhattan is not exactly the easiest or most inconspicuous place to relieve oneself of a body. So she simply hid him. According to some, there was a note attached to the body that said, quote, This poor man broke into my home and was trying to rob me. End quote. But this note cannot be seen anywhere and its existence cannot be confirmed in any sources that I have found. That would be great, though. This poor man <laughs> tried to rob me. Whoop! Sorry. <laughs> you, know, you do what to do, guys. I mean, I kept him for you for a long time. Yeah. Mm.
1: I just didn't feel like going down to the trash.
0: Well, that's the thing. Everything is so visible there. Like, yeah. you couldn't just, just like people dispose of a body by, like, burying it in the backyard or putting it in a dumpster in the middle of the night? This is Manhattan. You can't, nowhere isn't being watched at all times. Right. So that's why a lot of people theorize that she would have just kept him. The second theory is that Dorian hid the body for a friend. Mm -hmm. Someone else had killed him, maybe one of her children. And we spoke about how house mothers will do anything to protect their children. And she took it to spare their life and this man was a violent rapist. So this could have been any situation. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. And there are a few flimsy theories that the body was in the apartment when Dorian moved into it in 1988. But come on. The likelihood that a landlord would let that happen is slight. The landlord would have to know who the previous occupant was, and it would be pretty easy to report the body, the murder, and the person who left it there. Plus, you might live with a body if you were responsible for taking that body's life or if you were protecting someone you love, these are plausible things that I understand, but you are certainly not going to live with a stinky old body if it just happened to come with your apartment.
1: But. Again, did it actually smell until they opened it? I
0: don't know. It but doesn't... Still. I
1: mean, they were fighting over the bag, like, fighting to get it open. You would have thought that they would have they would have smelt it Well, first. she would have opened it. If it came in her
0: apartment, there was just a bag in her closet. You don't just keep a bag forever. Like, I'll never well, touch it. Maybe she threw the cape on top of it and didn't see it. The cape wasn't there. It's okay. tragic. Um, but, like, <laughs> this is one of those situations where I just think, come on, people, try harder. She moved that body from one location to another, though. That is what that means. Okay. Because she moved in 19. 19- 88 so it would have had to come with her hmm. I don't think it was just left there and she discovered it and went oh gonna keep it forever because that seems nuts to me
1: right I feel like she would have called the cops maybe then but like you said there could have also maybe she didn't feel safe enough to call it had she found that
0: I understand that but there's also a, a trace there. I moved in. Here are the records of the person who lived here. Yeah. I just got here. And this body would have been old by then. 1988? Mm-hmm. Would have already been around for 20 years. So I, I just, that feels flimsy to me. That, okay. That one. Finally, many people speculate that Robert Worley and Dorian were in a turbulent relationship, and this could have turned in several ways. There are those who think that Robert attacked Dorian when the two were engaged in a fight and that Dorian shot him in fear for her own life. Still, others think that Robert was in the the closet, like not actually a closet, like... (laughs) (laughs) I wrote that and didn't think it could be misconstrued, but it could. Um, (laughs) And surely if he were gay and that Dorian posed a threat to expose him as a homosexual, um, he would be afraid of that. So he went after her. And again, he brought a fist to a gunfight, basically. Right. One of the prevailing theories is that Robert was unaware that Dorian began her life as male and that he flew into a rage when he discovered that Dorian still had a penis. I know I stated earlier that she had undergone gender reassignment surgery, but that doesn't have to happen in the underpants area. Dorian had breast implants, which for a biological male is considered gender reassignment surgery if they want it to be. Mm -hmm. So there are men with glorious breasts and ladies uh, and there are men with glorious breasts that are ladies and men that aren't. Okay. So enjoy them, guys. And Dorian was the former. It is suspected that Robert, discovering that her downstairs was not what he expected, tried to kill Dorian. But again, she had a gun and was in the exact position that would force her to use it. Crackerjack shot too. Oof, just one. The leading theory in this case, however, is even more sordid. Listed in the evidence is a story that Dorian had written herself. It is on yellowed paper in her own hand, and it tells the story of a transgendered woman who killed her lover after he bullied her into getting gender reassignment surgery. Dorian had gotten breast implants and some say she had also um, taken estrogen and included in the story were many details of Dorian's own life. The lead character even worked at the Pearl Box review where Dorian had danced in her youth. This theory was further confirmed when Robert's estranged brother came forward saying that his brother had shown up to his house drunk one night and went on for hours and hours about Dorian. So whether or not he forced her to have surgery, the two clearly knew each other and their relationship led to his untimely death. Detective Figueroa, however, does not think Dorian was a criminal. And I love that he states it this way. He said he doesn't think she had a criminal mind in any way. Judging by the crime, quick cleanup, and years of hiding his body, He believes that it was a crime of passion that Dorian had to quite literally live with for the rest of her life. Mm. The one awful moment, and it quite literally has residence in your home forever. Wow. Yeah. So how did you get away with it for all those years? Well, and this is kind of awful, Dorian lived in a fringe community who were never paid much attention by the police. They protected their own. She never gave anyone a single reason to believe something had happened. And Robert Worley was a criminal who was completely estranged from his family. His family, who he was blood-related to, wouldn't miss him. Him, and her family who she chose would never tell and thus a body existed in a garment bag for over 2 decades while dorian made dresses ate breakfast and slept beside it nearly the show must go on wild yep that
1: story is so much <laughs> i know can you describe how it was wrapped i can't find okay. any pictures um
0: so the body was basically
1: tightly rolled
0: up in a large like a large sheet of this okay. fabric or probably several like if you had yards of something, yards mm-hmm. of this naga hide material, and you like rolled him up in it okay. tightly, like a mummy, except for bigger sheets, not like little strips. Okay. So it was tight around him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was, faux leather is not a very breathable fabric. Any mm-hmm. of us who were like teenagers in the 90s and had pants made of that material does not breathe. It does Doesn't not. Doesn't breathe. Mm-mm. Very uncomfortable. You just um. sweat in buckets. Yes, you do. <laughs> 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 yep, it's terrible. But I suppose that would keep in most stuff,
1: liquid, stench. Kept in my sweat and stench.
0: (laughs) Didn't we all have those moments? But it was like wrapped up and taped up and then put in a, like zipped up in a garment bag. And if you think a garment bag is like the shape of a suit, so it's something you could easily zip a person up into. Yeah. And then it was like folded in half. Yeah, I know. I hate that part too. Um, and I guess it just was
1: less tall as time went on. It would decrease in yeah. visible
0: volume. Ooh.
1: And then like actually looked like a garment was in there. Like it was probably flatter. As as time passed bendy. and it
0: deflated. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's what would have happened.
1: Ew.
0: Yeah, it's not a pretty thought. And because it was wrapped in that kind of material that would preserve liquid, oh, some yes. of it was still liquid. Mm. So think of like a Ziploc bag. I don't need to. Yeah. Um, Well, maybe somebody else does. (laughs) (laughs) You're keeping something in plastic, you're going to preserve all of that. Yeah. Hence why I said like it wouldn't really mummify. Like nothing's going to dry out in a Ziploc bag. Mm. So anything that was any part of it that was like slightly exposed to air might have dried out somewhat. But the part that was like resting on the bottom kind of collected. Yeah. Because all your liquid is going to sink with gravity. Okay. I know it's very gross.
1: You did ask. (laughs) I did ask. No, I wanted to know. I wanted to know. But now I know.
0: Yeah, your fluids will go downward yes. and pool in those places. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that from mm-hmm. seeing cadavers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, that's those are our crazy stories. Uh, something I didn't mention in writing this, which I do regret not talking about, is that while it was very dangerous for people in their community because a lot of violence, they met, a lot of them met with violence, far more dangerous was the AIDS crisis. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the cast list of Paris is Burning, you will notice that something like 95% of them are now gone and 95% of them died of AIDS. Yep. I think one, one, I think Pepper LaBeja didn't have AIDS. I think she, mm-hmm. she passed away from like heart and di- diabetes issues. Mm-hmm. But everybody else was AIDS-related complications.
1: It's so sad.
0: Yeah. It tore through their community. And at the time, horribly, it was seen as like a, a gay plague. And so people mm-hmm. kind of just left it awful, awful. We will, we will talk about the AIDS crisis at yeah. some point because I think it deserves its own time. And there's so much there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe like World AIDS Day when that comes around. Okay. We can talk about that. But I did feel that that was worth mentioning because that's how Dorian died. hmm And so many people that she knew and loved, that's how they died. So I'm glad that we have the mm-hmm. science that we have now where people can kind of live pretty well. I
1: think the saddest part of that story is if her little story was true, that she was forced yeah. into the gender reassignment.
0: Yeah. It's hard to know if that was all fact or if some of it was creative writing based around a real incident.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very hard to know. Uh, That's the sad truth, though, because a lot obviously most of them want to feel I mean, we all want to feel accepted and loved. And when you aren't accepted and loved and you find somebody that is showing you some ounce of that relationship or like romance or something, some sort of love or fake love, as a lot of it is, you could be forced to do a lot of things just to keep it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think on some little tiny shred of a level, we all understand that feeling mm-hmm. when you're with someone who you're afraid is going to leave you at any moment. Mm-hmm. So you'll basically do anything.
1: We've all made little changes every once Absolutely. in a while. Even if we fix them, like we're able to fix it and get back to us. Yeah. But we've all made little changes and some of them are fine sacrifices, but other ones stay with you and you feel terrible about them the rest of your life.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's 100% true. Mm-hmm. And something that, I mean, I guess a little thread that we can kind of empathize with with and kind of like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I understand how that might happen.
1: Yeah. Oh,
0: so sad. As I mentioned several times earlier, I hope we got all the stuff right in this one. Yeah. We did research hard. We did watch. We did listen. Mm-hmm. But we still want to listen to you. So if there is something that we missed, something that we got wrong, something that when you heard us say it made you go, uh, um, tell us. Yes. And we will be very happy to correct ourselves and to learn and keep going. Yeah. That's the
1: best anybody can do, I think. Mm-hmm. And watching that movie was really fun. The ball culture. Yes. It was so fun. Um, oh, I think what? I said it to you where it's like, I can never, I'll never come. Completely understand them yep. and and the ball culture, mm-hmm. but I understand how good it feels to get awards as you do. Yeah. I love awards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all love to be validated, mm-hmm. and I love being in a room with people that get me that are my people. Yep, you know, like you do it with theater. Sports was my thing, mm-hmm. and you just get to be in a room with a bunch of people that you identify with, and that you can then compete in kind of a in generally a safe space. Yeah, and just do what you want and see how good you are at it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And this was the opportunity for them to live that and to, I, I, I'm always so taken by the fact that they it was referred to as like wish fulfillment. Like mm-hmm. anything that you want to be in your life, you could be that in that room yeah. for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And these, I have to, anybody who hasn't seen Paris is Burning, these take place in like an Elk's Lodge. Yeah. You want it to be like a big beautiful, And it's a big space, but it's mm-hmm. not like a grand theater or something. They mm-hmm. make it what it is. Yeah. And it's pretty awesome to watch. I'm going to watch Poe. And yes. we can all talk about it at another
1: time I <laughs> started episode one today It was good
0: Awesome <laughs> uh, Yeah, I know I'm like really motivated to do that now I'm like, wow mm-hmm. Very impressive um, So I guess uh, it's time to toast Okay I think to, like obvious toasts again this week We're kind of hitting home runs with this one mm-hmm. We're going to toast to Dorian and Venus Yes mm-hmm. and, le- and everybody else that made their life colorful and beautiful And sacrificed for it Yeah so, Cheers Cheers. Clink that was my straw. We're, we're a little we're far away far at this away table, and um, we also have a new patron this week. Mm. Cheers to our good friend John Radicasa! Thank you for supporting us on Patreon and in like every other way a person could support <laughs> us. John is a gem and wonderful, and you should all love him. And he's gonna cook us
1: dinner and bake us goodies one night, and we're so excited. We'll <laughs> so tell it. him a
0: hundred stories forever. <laughs> I love John. He makes my face beautiful in plays.
1: Yes, so good.
0: <laughs> Makes my radio face acceptable for live audiences.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We all thank you for that, John. Yeah,
0: man, especially me. Make me palatable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I think, um, I think
0: that's everything for this week. Okay. And if we were trying to make our way in a world that seemed against us at every turn, we we would would be be dead. dead.
1: Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod, And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I don't have to tell you you're ugly because you already know you are. <laughs>